This episode is in partnership with Authority Magazine. Authority Magazine, a medium publication, is devoted to sharing in-depth and interesting interviews featuring people who are authorities in business, pop culture, wellness, social impact, and tech. At the age of 21, Howard Kaplan was sent on a mission into the Soviet Union to smuggle a dissident's manuscript on microfilm back to London. He's now turned his daring do into a series of thrillers set in the Middle East and in particular, Syria. Howard joins us today to discuss his work, but as well, the current events that drive his passion. Welcome to Believe in People. Thank you. Pleasure to be here from my home with all the ease of doing that. <laughs> Let me ask you this. How does a young fellow end up uh, smuggling documents uh, out of the former Soviet Union or whatever it was at the time? I think the impetus for me, and it's funny, it's changed later in my life. But at a young age, meeting in college, at 20, my parents were Holocaust survivors and I felt that the world did nothing to help them. I was vastly motivated by this notion. And I thought I wasn't going to sit silent. And the thing that was available for me to do in the 1970s was go into the Soviet Union and meet with dissidents. And when they, I had a training group in Jerusalem. I don't know, there were about a dozen of us in it. We met once a week for about a year. And they said they were going to ask the person they felt was the most competent to go in and bring out a roll of microfilm. And somewhat to my surprise, but maybe not, they said, that's you at the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they put me on a plane and sent me to London where some... Jewish kind of Mossad people picked me up and took me into their houses and trained me a bit more. And they say, off you went, you go. And there I went. Where I was going to say I changed a little bit. This is really sort of an update. I've been thinking about this recently. I sort of thought the Holocaust was a unique event in that people didn't pay attention to it. But I've recently thought or changed my thinking to believe that nobody does anything about anything. And whether it's Rwanda or the Ukraine, you know, the muted sort of response to that. And now the Republicans attempting to, you know, cease that. So maybe it was a good thing that I didn't realize that at 20, because I probably would, might not have done all these things or started this career writing in this way. Uh, but that's how I've changed over a good number of decades. I suppose I feel the silence of the Holocaust was not so unique as I felt at 20. And so, and then Howard, then what, uh, you know, you change your perspective, you have a different understanding of what's going on. So then, and then in your writings, I mean, you're focused on Pal the Palestinian-Israeli um, uh, plight, I suppose, that's, you know, with the, the challenges there. Did you 
anticipate this at all? I mean, you know, you've done extensive writing in this area. Anticipate what you're referring to? Anticipate the what's happening in the Gaza. I anticipated that Israel was naive in thinking that they could maintain an occupation of the West Bank and the blockade of Gaza. The blockade sort of makes sense. Let me tell you something a little slightly tragic. In other words, to answer your question, I think it's certainly the event was much worse than I ever anticipated, the actual Hamas attack on October 7th. But that there would be, I wrote an editorial in 1987 in the Los Angeles Times that said, will the West Bank turn Israel into a permanently besieged fortress? And that editorial holds today. But sort of here's a little tidbit. I don't know. It's like as a writer, I do anecdotal things. I went into Gaza with American aid workers in 1988 while Israel still occupied Gaza. And I saw some fabulous synagogues and settlements. The aid workers were sort of pro-Palestinian, so they wouldn't let me buy them drinks, you know, even though it was hot. I mean, drinks meaning water or soda at the Israeli store in one of the settlements. You know, they parked outside and I walked in. But one of the things they told me was that Israel did not allow chemotherapy in Gaza. And I've always wanted to understand this, and I actually should ask people, but I never really have. And I wondered, is this because it's nuclear material in some way? or radioactive material, and it could be used in some whatever by Hamas. But there is this woman, Virginia Silver, who was a big peace activist living near the Gaza border. They thought up until two days ago, when we're recording here, that that she was a, a hostage. And with this incredible work that these Zaka people do, they're like archaeologists. They, they're working with little brushes through bone to identify people. They decided, they discovered, identified her as dead. She is much vaulted for having met Gazan patients at the Eras crossing and taking them to Israeli hospitals for chemotherapy. But what I've never seen anybody mention in this, even in this kind of statement, is that Israel prevents any chemotherapy from being administered in Gaza hospitals. So I guess these are the kinds of uh, conundrums that I wrestle with as a writer, but up until just recently, I thought I would have nothing more to say about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because it just seemed like it was going to continue to grind in the old way. And I, in fact, wrote this book, The Syrian Sunset, which is my latest book, uh, even though it deals with Israel and is set greatly also in Jerusalem outside of a few statements about the Israeli psyche and and the connection to the Holocaust. And both my parents were Holocaust survivors. My mother was in Auschwitz. Uh, 
I wanted to go to a different canvas, to a larger canvas, to the Syrian civil war and sort of deal with it's a lot of my novels are historical. This is probably the most historical and deal with what had happened, why we didn't the West go in or Israel. I read a very good piece about how Israel, they certainly did their normal thing. They took in, you know, patients from the Golan Heights, people who were injured but neither America nor Israel in the end, well, it's mostly American. It's not so much a story about Israel. It's about the Obama administration. And I'm a Democrat. Failed to aid the Syrian people and conceded the territory, meaning the country, to Vladimir Putin, which ultimately likely encouraged him to go into Ukraine because he thought the West was feckless uh, and somebody I met with an APAC person in Washington, I was talking to some film people and he said to me, was Obama feckless and not going in? You know, he's kind of a right winger Republican. I said, I don't think he was so feckless. I think he wanted consensus that that was his background. You know, he was looking for Britain to come in with him. And when the British parliament voted against cross party lines against David Cameron, their leader, and didn't, vote to join Obama in taking out the barrel bomb capacity, which might have given the Syrian Free Army a chance to win that war. He just wouldn't, and Boehner was on his back against it, he just wouldn't go on his own. Uh, so now I'm a little bit, I'm working with some film people on the Syrian sunset, and I've been so kind of, uh, I saw a Somebody used a word that I would appropriate. I'm kind of a waraholic. Now I'm sitting all day and reading, and I post a lot on Facebook, a kind of larger analysis rather than the kind of IDF talking points that a lot of people adhere to. Well, let me ask, I mean, as someone who is in the media and um, me, someone who spent his uh, professional life in the media, I want to ask you this question. Um, you know, when you talk, you use the word feckless with regards to the West. And uh, I mean, we could talk all day about whether or not we think that was what was going on. But I want to ask you about the mood, I guess, that's in the in the, in the general populace these days. And that is that it is almost impossible to have a discussion like the one we're having right now with regards to the situation that's going on in, in the Middle East, Israel, Gaza. West Bank, you cannot have a discussion along those lines without barricading yourself uh, on in one camp or the other. How does that? How do you react to that? You say that you're very active on Facebook or what? Or you're, you're reading? I mean, I can't read the New York Times without being enraged every morning, and it's it's not being enraged about whether which side I'm on. It's being enraged about the fact that people are so darned entrenched. How do you overcome that? Because how are we ever going to achieve peace if people can't get out of their own trench? You, know, you, you sort of remind me, my sort of personal mentor among several that I had, one was Arthur Hertzberg, who is the author of The Zionist Idea and one of the great minds of his generation. He died in 2006. He was head of the 
American Jewish Congress, yes, could have been World Jewish Congress, but one of those. And they never made him, even though he was the smartest guy in the room, president of the association, I forget what it's called, all the major Jewish organizations have a council and they elect a president and they wouldn't allow, they wouldn't nominate him because he was too progressive on questions of Israel, even though he was the greatest scholar of Zionism. So he once told me, I became a congregational rabbi in Inglewood, New Jersey with a lifetime contract. So I wouldn't be susceptible to any of these organizational people. In other words, his money was secure. His living was secure. So he never had to kowtow to what anybody else thought. And even in terms of novels, I sort of learned that. And my father was one of these Polish immigrants who bought real estate. So I became financially independent, even aside from my writings. So I'm not vulnerable in any sense. And also my provenance is a bit unique. You know, you started out with, uh, I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. I went into Russia twice to bring in, one time they sent me to Tel Aviv for a weekend to pick up Hebrew novels, autographed to bring to the underground Hebrew teachers. I've written now two novels about Syrian Jewry, the earlier one was filmed with Sir John Hurt and Jonathan Reese Myers. Mm -hmm. So if I'm jumped on, generally I just unfriend the people. <laughs> Usually if it's repeated, um, I'll block them. But mostly there's a, there's a fair amount of intelligent discussion on my Facebook main page, partly because I've weeded out some of the other people. Like I've written things like recently um, that I'm not a fan of Jewish memes. I don't know if that's the right word. Uh, you know, uh, for example, right before the clocks changed, people were talking about, I'm turning the clock back to 1938. Right. So I make statements, for example, I'm walking around my neighbor, I've just been on airplanes traveling and openly talking with other Jews on the flights and walking around my adjacent neighborhood, Cheviot Hills, uh, yesterday, there was chalk on the sidewalk from a kid named Lev, Lev with a Jewish star and an arrow saying, this is the way to my birthday party through the backyard and more chalk on the yard. So what I'm saying is it's not 1938, but there is a problem with anti-Semitism and it's very complex because part of it is inherent and part of it is linked to a very long, increasingly tough occupation in the West Bank. Is it, so 19, I, is it 1948? Uh, it, it, in what way? Meaning the beginning of the state of Israel is vulnerable again or... Uh, no, I guess I'm suggesting uh, if if people are going to say 1938 in terms of referencing the Holocaust, uh, Palestinians would refer to 1948 as the first Nakba, and many people are talking about a second Nakba now. I mean, again, how do we reconcile this? I think that Netanyahu is a grave danger to the existence of Israel and even 
the well-being of the Jewish people because he is not a prime minister who is motivated by like almost every other, like every other prime minister I can think of, what's best for the people of Israel. He's motivated by staying out of jail because he's assembled this ultra-right-wing coalition because they're going to write a, a codicil so he can't be tried. Mm -hmm. I think that Biden, I think Biden has been the greatest friend of Israel in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think the Biden-Blinken idea that you've got to find, there are 7 million Jews between the river and the sea and 5 million Palestinians. The math is pretty simple. You can't possibly consider that 7 million people are going to occupy and control 5 million people indefinitely. And Netanyahu is stonewalling, you know, and sort of sticking his thumb up into their eyes. And ultimately, uh, Tom Friedman wrote a very good piece. He said he's campaigning to try to stay in power. So he won't go to jail, not looking for a solution. So I think this idea that there's a, you have to be thinking about the day after whatever the elimination of Hamas, which seems an imperative. I mean, I don't think Israel can exist with Hamas on its borders, but it's the mucking around of Netanyahu that left Israel so vulnerable. You know, they, they moved troops from Gaza into the West Bank because they're so busy, you know, not reining in the settlers from uh, burning cars, looting uh, olive groves. I just read the other day, there's some new illegal settlements going up now during the Gaza war because everybody's too busy to deal with them. Uh, so I think that there is a chance that out of this awful event of October 7th, a new realization, in a sense, Hamas's methods were abominable. I mean, it's it's really inconceivable what they did. It's, it's really, I, I don't have an imagination. I once had a literary agent, Scott Meredith, at the beginning of my career, who was Norman Mailer's agent. And he wrote a book called Writing to Sell. And he said, real life is crazier and more unbelievable than fiction. And in fiction, you have to be more believable. Because I used to get people to come up and tell me this really happened. In there, and he said, I don't care. You can't put it in your novel because it's not believable. Uh, so I think there is a large movement in Israel. The Poles want Netanyahu out, but the majority of the people want the war to finish first. So I think it's going to be a real struggle. Are they going to you know, double down on in this fear of being an occupying power and trying to control 5 million people? Or are they going to say, we got to eliminate the worst of the worst, which is Hamas? And then we have a chance to build a new future. There's a tremendous groundswell in Israel for that, even so, with all the pain. So actually, Howard, to that point then, um, with that chance, what does that look like for, for, for us? What does that baby step look like for hope of a uh, glimmer of, of hope, of chance? Well, I think, you know, what Biden and Blinken are saying is and is you need to reform the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority is a very corrupt organization. 
But Israelis do crazy stuff. They just went over in Tulkarim, which is near the, the very neck of Israel. Some of my novels, I think, to destroy Jerusalem has scenes in Tulkarim. And they bulldozed a monument to Arafat. That's just senseless antagonism, creating senseless antagonism. Uh, I think, you know, Abbas is like 87 or something like that. There needs to be a new generation of Palestinian leaders. You know, what do they say? Who knew not Haman? And they say on, on Purim. And there has to be a strengthening of that entity. And some interim force in Gaza. The Gazans are in a very tough position. I've been to Gaza because on one hand, they hate Hamas. On the other hand, hundreds and thousands of children are being killed by aerial bombing now. So they're, you know, they're just all torn apart. I actually mentor some writers in Gaza through a program called We Are Not Numbers. Nobody's answering me at the moment. I, they know I'm a liberal Zionist and a two-state solution person. So either they're not answering me. I think one of them is just too angry. And who knows if now I don't know if there's internet or there, and I'm not sure who's there. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. You started, that was founded, I, I was reading about that, two, 2015. Right. right. Yeah. I started about half a dozen years ago, something like yeah. that. Yeah. I met someone. And I also taught Arabic and Israeli fiction at UCLA. I found, uh, as you might imagine, they're all writing autobiographical fiction. But you learn a lot. Uh, there's a place, that, I have an article in the foreword people can find. Uh, I forget, you know, Maybe if you Google my name, it's from years ago. It's about one of my mentees. I think it's called Gaza Girl, something mm -hmm. like that. And she writes about, uh, this is a fantastic notion, and maybe this is, again, what fiction does. Her, She's never left Gaza. She tried to go to a writer's conference in the West Bank, and the Israelis delayed the permit. But more to the point, she's a friend who got very ill, and now we're sort of coming around to the hospitals. And the Israelis brought her to Jerusalem for treatment. And this is a true story, obviously written in fiction. And this writer, uh, mentee of mine, is dreaming that she can get sick. Dreaming that, that she can become very ill so that she will get to see Jerusalem once in her lifetime. That they might take her, you know, for medical care. So I think there is, you know, it really depends. You know, Israel is a little bit in shock now. Mm -hmm. And the the sensitivity towards a civilian death seems to be minimal. One of the, somebody, I didn't read it, but somebody referred one of the hostage mothers. His name is Hirsch, I think Goldberg. I think she may be American. Wrote a piece about why you shouldn't have empathy or something. I shouldn't say that. I didn't read it, so I, I don't want to quote it exactly. She met somebody today, I think. Uh, I just saw it briefly. Uh, I think she met with the UN people or some American people. But I think when people, you know, Steve Jobs used to always say, people don't know what they want. And it's my job to show them, you know, <laughs> what that they do really want an iPhone even though they never heard of a cell phone before. And I think if you can get a younger generation of leaders in Israel and a younger generation 
of leaders in the Palestinian Authority, they might just say enough. Mm. And maybe enough people are shocked in Israel to say, we've got to go on a different path because otherwise we're going to be fighting wars forever. Yeah. And at one point we may lose one. You mentioned, uh, you know, uh, we've heard so much about Rashida Talib having to, uh, or being, being uh, sanctioned um, by Congress and so many people demanding that she uh, apologize for using the phrase river to the sea. Um, and you're talking about we need modern leaders on both sides, but I would like you and I would like you to, to explain to me what is the difference between river to the sea and Judea and Samaria, which is what these young settlers, many of whom carry American passports, are saying when they are doing what you mentioned earlier. Um, I think they are mirror images of each other, although I did see something really interesting today. Some Israeli posted on, on his own, I think, Facebook page in Hebrew, and my Hebrew is quite good. Um, he says, I live in the middle of Israel next to my Muslim neighbors and next to my Druze neighbors, and we both live from the river to the sea. I'm not exactly sure what he meant. I don't think he was calling for a political change in borders i think he was saying we can all live here yes we, yeah. we all live between the river and the sea right um i think that the settlers are very dangerous um you know it's kind of the same thing when the palestinians say from the river to the sea it's intimidating it's frightening you know does it mean you know we push everybody into the sea as we tried to in 1948, as they tried to. Or is it again, you know, go back to the Steve Jobs thing, you know, when you offer them a real solution, what percentage are going to say no? And what much larger percentage are going to say we have to do this on both sides? Now, what to do with these extremist messianic settlers is just a terrible dilemma. Because they are, you know, it, it's almost hard for me to imagine these people studying Torah all day, who's, you know, they'll, they'll go in now. I think, you know, there's a couple hundred Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since October 7th. Some are Hamas, some are in firefights with the IDF, and a lot of them are just being murdered by settlers because there isn't enough supervision, you know. I read about some guy, he... He was out. It's olive picking season now. He went to his grove and the settlers came in, you know, armed. And so they ran away, but he dropped his cell phone. So he went back to get his cell phone and the settler just shot him, killed him. And there's no justice. You know, I'm sure he was not arrested. They do a, a modicum of justice. But right now, they either don't have the manpower or the will to do that. And that's one of the things Biden has stepped in strongly on. I said, you know, you have to stop this settler violence. So, you know, these people are talking about expelling Palestinians. And another idea, maybe let me explain something else that comes up often. A lot of people are saying, why don't the Arab, you see a lot of sort of hawkish Jews say, why don't the Arab countries take the Palestinians in or take the Gazans in? Well, the Palestinians don't want to leave 
because they feel if they do leave, they'll never be able to come back. And they see this as their land and their, and I don't like these historic arguments on either side. I don't care who was there in the 17th century. I don't even really ultimately care who was there in 1948 because you got 12 well, how people. In, how about in the Bible? Ugh. And I don't care about that. Actually, I have it in a novel, The Spies Gamble. I really like this. Um, I have a settler. I have some settlers and Arabs who start to come together. But I have a settler kid who goes to his father, who's one of these Bible historical people. And he says, Dad, what would happen if we went into a cave and we discovered aliens had landed on Earth way before us? And they were here in the territories called Judea and Samir in the West Bank before us, would it then be their land? Is it their historic right to come back? So the father has no answer for this, but he does move towards uh, towards the Palestinians. There's a rescue of a bus accident. Uh, but, you know, the settlers have to a great degree won the battle. And now they are... You know, one of the great Israeli novels, I wish I could quote it. Um, uh, Egeret, I think is his name, wrote something funny that said, like, we were trying to protect the settlers, from, we were, but the settlers ended up taking over the country. Hmm. You know, and that's in this government they have. So I think it's going to be very tough. There are, but I think there are land swap possibilities where sections of Israel that are unoccupied can go into the West Bank. And some of the biggest settlements, Malay, Adumim, are right, you know, around Jerusalem. Borders could be withdrawn there. I'm not sure I answered the question, but I am certainly talking. Well, <laughs> that's what you're here for. But at the end of, uh, as we reach the end of our time, um, I'd like to first say that this conversation could go on for hours and hours over many cups of coffee or tea. Um, but the second part is that despite the fact we have spent the last half hour discussing an awful, awful event um, on the 7th and the awful consequences and the resulting violence that has happened after, you still sound like someone who has hope. And that is- I actually, yeah. I actually think in a peculiar way, if sound minds take over, this can be a fulcrum to a better world. Well, this is why I want to ask you our closing question, which is Please. what we ask everyone. And that is, despite all of this, why do you still believe in people? Uh, I've been fortunate in my life. I had difficult parents, as I said, they were Holocaust survivors. And to say they were difficult would be, you know, a modest statement. <laughs> and throughout my life, I have met fabulous people. I have a handful of friends I know for 50 years, you know, from college and beyond. One of the great educators in Israel, Avram Enfeld, is a close friend of mine. I was mentored by Michael Blankford, who wrote the, the original Kane Mutiny screenplay and the first feature film ever shot in Israel called The Juggler with Kirk Douglas, a Stanley Kramer film. And I continue to, I had a meeting in Cabo San Lucas last week just by chance. I happened to be there and I met with an old 
financial guy I knew who I hadn't seen in 25 years. And so he offered me a deal. <laughs> he offered me <laughs> 3% of the company that he's forming. And so I took it. I'd go to the bank <laughs> after I talked to you and send him money. Uh, so I have, and also I've been through the Arab world. I've been to Syria. I've been to Lebanon twice. I've been to Egypt. I've been to Morocco. And I found fantastic human beings. There's a real culture of welcoming. I've told the story before that uh, when I was doing the Spies Gamble, I was sitting in the Grove in Los Angeles um, with a date. And at the table next to me was a man from Qatar in a head, you know, in formal clothes, his wife with a headdress. And I started asking him, so I wanted to use it in the novel, would he eat because of halal, if he follows, you know, uh, halal, which is, you know, Muslim uh, ritual slaughter, is very close to kashrut. So I said, would you eat in a kosher home, in, the, in a settlement? He said, of course, we're all brothers. He was there with his kids. They were eating pizza. They left before me. And when I went to pay my bill, I found he had paid it. There you go. You know, so those moments remain. And even in the, event, in the midst of a lot of really awful yeah. times. Well, Howard, we're um, we're we're hopeful, um, and having spoken with you, uh, th thank you so much for your time. We're grateful that you uh, took some time to come on to our podcast. Uh, and my pleasure to be here. Um. Okay, things seem bleak, but I would just like to say that I would like to dedicate this week's conversation to Vivian Silver, the Canadian activist who it has now been revealed was murdered by Hamas that horrible day. Um, and I just want everyone to know that she worked for peace uh, and uh, she got caught. Um, she got caught, but I bet wherever she is today, she's looking down and she still has hope too. And hoping that's and hope is what we need right now because uh, fear is rampant. And um, and I I think with uh, what Howard said, I mean, if we stay the uh, the have the understanding that there is hope, then that's what we have to strive for um, in this mess and turmoil and fear and anger. And uh, so something hopeful that will come out of it. Uh, thank you for watching this episode, and we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, hoping that uh, we can offer you a little dose of weekly hope. Thanks. Thank you.